Hey, Small Beans listener, did you know we're in the process of trying to make a movie? It's true. It's called Papa Bear and tells the story of the time my dad came out as a gay furry when I was 17. We're currently looking for investors, creative partners, and talent to attach to the project. If you'd like to know more or to see our script, lookbook, and business plan, please hit us up at allthesmallbeans at gmail.com. Small Beans patrons can also listen in on the whole process by checking out our movie production diary series over at the Patreon. Thanks for your time, and now, on with the pod. Hey, Adam. Hey, Abe. When's the last time you took a bath? A bath? <laughs> a bath? Yeah, like pruny Ooh. fingers. Ooh. Like... I, I don't know. Dude, I don't know. A bath? Right? Fuck, I don't I know. I can't even think of that shit. I don't know if I, I think... was an adult. and ha- I don't think I've had one as an adult. I don't think I've had an adult bath. Yeah, me neither. Not even in the sexy and I don't, sense a, a, a nice little swim doesn't count. No, no, no. I've been in like ponds and stuff and like lakes yeah, yeah, and we've been pools. in ponds. You yeah. can't prove we haven't <laughs> been in ponds. <laughs> That's uh, right. You can't prove I haven't been there. Uh, but like I, I haven't had a bath for a long time. No, why would... I mean, this is like a whole separate podcast series, really. Just like <laughs> why baths. Uh, no, it's been a I long mean, time. Thank you for asking. It can be relaxing. I did some for sports. That's that's technically true, right? You know, yeah, ice baths and whatnot. Like, well, yeah, the medicinal baths, right? Where it's like about soaking. But like to me, that's like the same as like going in a cryo machine or something, right? Where it's like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, you gotta let this you weird thing do. happen to your body for a little bit, and then you're free. Then you're free. Yeah, that's true. Whereas a bath, it's like I get to splish splash. I'm <laughs> taking a bath. Um, Did you have any yeah. toys that were like your toys? I don't fucking think so. I don't either. Yeah. I think I was just a little kid just playing with bubbles, jerking my chain. <laughs> That's, uh, right. You know who loves baths more than anything else? Parents. Who? Fucking parents love baths. Yeah. What is with that? I don't know. It's... Like they don't do it. Why do they think it's so great that kids are doing it? Pretty weird parents. It's... <laughs> I'm just going to yeah, call what's wrong parents with you? in general. What's yeah. wrong with you? Is yeah. it? Is it because you want them to be, because like, you're like, at any moment, you're like, I could just put their head down in the water. <laughs> I could just let it all go away. Much like the ghost does Easier in this life. movie we watched. Yeah, it, uh, the ghost does do that. Yeah, a little uh, girl ghost tries to drown the the real the real girl. Uh, yeah, uh, the, yeah, the ghosts want, were a little, uh, shall we say, complex. Right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Abe sent me a text. Uh, I want to say it was last night around five or something like that. Yeah. And it was like, dude, Dark Water, this is a terrible movie. <laughs> that's, that's text and I said, I know. It's a terrible man. movie. It's so, it's, I did not like it. I yeah. did not like it. No, uh, I didn't either. I didn't like, like it either. Like The Ring. I don't think most people have heard of Dark Water, but it's actually. 
It's sneaky that I hadn't even heard of it, to be honest, when you mentioned it, because wow. it's got John C. Riley in it. Yeah, it's yeah. got Jennifer Connelly in it. Yeah. And it was like, it's of that era where they were like, hey, the ring was really good. Little girls are terrifying. Let's make a horror That's movie. That's right. Well, and like they kept doing these, right? There was like seven or eight of these like There's specific, like yeah, cultural remakes that are like drawing on those traditions. And uh, yeah. this was like one of the last ones and one of the worst ones. I and this say. one is also based on a movie in Japan. I yes, think, that's right. It, it was Japanese based film? on the writings of the guy who wrote The Ring. Oh, okay. It's yeah, the yeah. same guy. It's so the same wait, guy. Wait, that guy's just. That guy just writes, he's like, what if it's like a well or like water's coming? I mean, I, yeah. That's just terrified of water. One presumes that, I mean, I assume he's from Japan. Uh, I might be wrong. If so, it might be like a feature of the climate. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. it being a more rainy climate. I'm I'm not sure. It's a little scary. Uh, Or just it feels like, you know, like it has its own cultural value. Uh I mm-hmm. couldn't tell you, honestly, because uh, this is actually not my favorite uh, wing of the horror tree. Uh, yeah, it's psychological, supernatural horror. Kind of. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's supernatural. A little bit of psychological thrown in there. Yeah. Definitely. I think Definitely. they're mostly synonymous in the American adaptations. You know, like the, yeah. they are interchangeable largely in the American adaptations. So. Uh, what do you want? So you showed me this terrible. <laughs> so I movie. made you watch it. So you're you're gonna. I don't know what you're gonna say about the same. Uh, but uh, the title, the tentative title, uh, that I wrote for this episode is "Dark Water Lackluster Thriller, Decent Drama." <laughs> decent hmm. drama. Decent uh, drama. Decent drama. A thing you might not agree with. Uh. Anyway, I, I want to start with kind of a broad overview of what it's like to be in the biz uh, and start with like kind of an obvious sentiment but that really matters here, which is that nobody wants to be typecast in Hollywood. Like very few people want to be typecast, um, especially if you're like an artist, right? Like you don't want your thing to uh, be packaged and simply described by somebody else because it feels like you've been contained in a box uh, that feels too small for your ravishing human spirit, right? Right. You are the special boy. Exactly, right. You're Harry Potter, damn it. How can you just be good at at potions? Uh, You know what I mean? And yet it's not like it's uncommon in film school even to start talking about the type of movie you make as early as like first semester, right? Like we're all doing it. Uh, like we're even we're doing it for ourselves, and we're definitely doing it for other people. Uh, case in point, I remember a certain Abe who was pretty committed from day one at film school to making comedies and introduced himself as a comedy director. Mm. Uh, and he was not the only person that chose to be a specialist like that. We have other friends and collaborators who are like I make horror films. That's what I make. Or I have a friend. Uh, who just makes genre films, as he describes it, right? I love stories about me. <laughs> yes, Abe used to wear his comedy trilby uh, uh-huh. and his monocle you around. You get it from Comedy University. That's right. <laughs> they give or it like, to you mm, with your diploma. He's got the uh-huh. comedian's hat. Uh, <laughs> now, by contrast, and I'm sure this is obvious to all of you, some people deeply resist this kind of classification, probably out of ego. 
because you know, again, we're we're special yeah, boys. You're multitudes, exactly. You're multitudes, man, and that's uh, and that's it's fine to be multiple things. Hey, totally, Jordan Peele, right? That's right. He's the guy who broke out. That's correct. Uh, and there are many others who, uh, you know, they they break out, and I think uh, a lot of those types of people they don't want to. They don't want to be classified, but also they might not be certain about what they say, like what kind of movie they want to make. Uh, like, for instance, uh, I remember a certain Adam Ganser who made a different genre every single film that he made in film school. I like it. I uh, like it. And uh, some some genres, it was pretty clear uh, that w- they were going to work for him. And some, it was pretty clear, don't do that. Like, for instance, the young woman at the beach genre. Don't make movies like Mm -hmm. that. (laughs) Uh, Abe laughs because I made a thesis film that was a very sensitive drama about Mm -hmm. uh, a young woman who is on a date with her rich boyfriend on like a vacation and she thinks he dies. And so she takes his credit card and like goes on a spending spree and uh, sort of discovers the way that he views her as more like a... More like a an object to be used rather than a person to be adored, and uh, I, it was just really clear I'm the wrong uh, guy for that. You know, uh, just <laughs> just not the right person but for that. It, yeah, yeah, no, but I mean that's that, what I respect is the the bumping around. Like to me, yeah. it's one thing to know what you're all about and just be like, that's my deal. I mean, I love Carpenter, right? He's the same thing. He's like, they'll pay me to keep making this shit, so cool you know like um but you always you're my little soderberg you know i yeah but like well that's yeah, right soderberg i like because you're like what's what can, let me push it what what do i think about this when i really deep down what does it really mean uh, yeah you know? it might be that and it might be that like i'm always on a search for something that i find uh unique or inspiring or spiritually meaningful in a genre and not so mm-hmm. much like I really just like laughs or I really just like scares or whatever. Like, I don't really care. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know, man. Uh, it might also just be, you know, not wanting to commit to anything. There's a lot of reasons. The problem of course, is that at a certain point, if you want to be a professional director, you kind of have to specialize to be employable like yeah. that. I mean, it's as simple as that. Like uh, if you want to people to recognize your work and hire you for something, you need to have work that says comedy director or, you know, cool music video director or works in commercials or whatever, something that is exactly the thing they're already looking for. Cause if that doesn't exist, you don't get hired. It's, you know, I mean, that's pretty much it. And if you're like shopping around, say like feature films or shopping around for a feature film gig, the question you're going to get asked all the time, cause I've been asked and I'm sure you have too, Abe is like, what kind of director are you? And uh, like, oh, so you make comedies? Oh, do you do horrors? Like, and they'll ask you this basically by genre and expect you to have kind of a body of work in that genre. Right. It's the quickest way to get to know someone when you correct. It's cold. It's cold reading. You know, kind of. Right. It's like I'm smelling your 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 butt, and (laughs) I want to see what your thing is. And okay, so you have a good uh, frame of reference from a horror standpoint. So I can, we can talk about all those tropes and you know, like it's that shit, that's but it's correct. also like makes you feel like you pigeonhole yourself. And that's the thing. That you feel trapped have. by the commitment of it and not in this committophobe yeah. way in this, like that may not actually represent who I am that well, 
but the truth is like being identifiable, huge part of being marketable. And, uh, you know, this is another sort of obvious fact, but like Hollywood is actually kind of risk averse. And because it's risk averse. Oh, really? Averse, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so, uh, I'm just, I'm an no, no, you're right. And you're right. also, like, and because they're risk averse, uh, they want to know that you've already done the thing that they want you to do. Yeah. You know, like, so it's this That's weird right. catch 22. Like, Abe and I, Abe knows this. Like, I was trying to get into commercial directing for a pretty long time coming out of Cracked. And oh, I boy. kept running into this, like, this catch 22 that made me feel like I was literally in the novel <laughs> catch 22, which is like, dude, you'd be so great on this commercial. All you need to do is have made a direct, have, have directed a commercial. Have you directed a commercial? It's like, no, somebody's got to hire me to do one of those first, man. That's how this works. You know, but it is not yeah. how this works. <laughs> Is the truth? Uh, yeah, it's a real thing, you know. Yeah, it's uh, you want to hear a, uh, if even we're, like a funny story. You know, I, guess, I do. It's a short story. Uh, it's not not just true with directors; true with cinematographers. Um, who, if you go to that film school, sense. cinematographers are treated like rock stars. They're like the guitarists. If they're you know? great, yes. If they're really good, yeah. they're like, oh, you're so fucking cool. You're so fucking cool. <laughs> but um, anyway, <laughs> the. Uh... <laughs> And, uh, so I many of my friends are cinematographers. I don't know why I do this to myself. There's so uh, it's cinematography class. Uh, you you're you're pitted with a cinematographer and one of uh, our cinematographer. He was talking about working in, in commercials, uh, sure. and he uh, he gave the story about how he didn't get a job one time because he was shooting. It was like fucking like dryers, strawberry ice cream. Right? Okay, and they looked at his reel, his commercial reel. And he just put in some, uh, he put in his work that he had done for ice cream already because he was an employable ice cream commercial shooter. He's a high, he's a high stakes ice cream wizard. And he had chocolate and vanilla. And that's what he put on the, uh, on the reel. He didn't get the job because he didn't have strawberry. No, get out of here. Yeah. And it's Uh. like. You, that is a ridiculous thing to have happened. But I also see what, like, if you think like they do in that risk adverse way you're talking about, it's because they were like, well, does he know to, like, I don't know anything about lighting. Do does you he like know it's more strawberry red? better? <laughs> like, the, does, and it's just like, you, t- you look at a uh, cinematographer and say that to their face and they're going to roll their eyes and they're going to be like, I can do fucking whatever. It's, I, I am not a lamp. I am not a color. Uh, but this is what we do to ourselves. But what are you going to do about the red? <laughs> but, but, but it's strawberry dude. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. so good. I love it. No, it's, it's a so real stupid. thing. Uh, it's, it's really dumb. Uh, and it, it's, it, it's a real, albatross sort of like hanging around the the early part of your filmmaking voyage you know um and quite frankly it takes a lot of success as a filmmaker to break out of these typecast roles you know um and even when you do break out of the typecast with like you know some big pivot then you're kind of like they want to kind of latch you into that new thing like i actually Mm -hmm. jordan peele's kind of a good example of that right where it's like now he's basically making horror and uh, not that I don't think he couldn't make a different thing. Of course he could. But, like, I think there's a reason why he keeps making horror projects, right? Um, maybe it's because yeah. he wants to. But, like, I also mm-hmm. think it's probably easier for him to get a horror project off the ground than, like, his drama now, you know? Because um, yeah. that's how this is, man. Um, so, enter Walter. And I don't know exactly how to pronounce his last name. I'm going to call it uh, Salas or Salas. It's probably Salas. Um, who is a wonderful Brazilian director. 
um, who makes, you know, intimate and emotionally charged dramas. Lots of them are sort of like uh, road movies. For instance, he made The Motorcycle Diaries, and he made, uh, I think more significantly, Central Station in 1998. Um, They're both pretty good films. Central Station's quite a great film. Have you seen either of those? No, I haven't. Okay, yeah. They're, They're like... They're they're not like heartwarming so much as they are like really they're keen emotional dramas and they're coming of age films and after a sense right like the road is a big agreement is a big element of it and like you know it's a person sort of softly changing over time and taking in the human experience like it's that kind of stuff. Do you um, know you, you went to our alma mater? I did know that, and I think oh. that's strange. Uh, but I did know that. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, not strange because why couldn't he be there, but strange that he, yeah, it's just a funny, like they never mentioned him, you know what I mean? Like, and he had yeah, like an interesting career. career. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot of people like that at USC. They just, they don't get my time, which is weird. In any yeah. case, um, he's, he's coming off the success of two pretty big films. Both of those were like, they made it over here. They were Brazilian films, but they were fairly successful. And, uh, then he gets asked to do his first English language film. Um, for Hollywood, and it was this movie called Dark Water, and uh, it was going to be kind of a transition to making mainstream films. And uh, Dark Water is part of that trend that we were talking about earlier, which is that Japanese horror film remake that has mm-hmm. kind of like a muddy, bleak aesthetic. And uh, th- it was a thing at the time to get like pretty big named actresses to anchor the film, which previous to that was not true of horror films. Um, so like you know Naomi Watts was in uh, the Ring right and uh, and in this what do you case mean, though like I mean the horror film has horror films have a long standing tradition of female protagonists but no no of getting famous actors to be in the horror oh, film I see, I that's see, what I'm saying oh, not okay, female protagonists yeah but they're getting like well known yeah. well known people like for instance Jennifer, Jennifer Connelly yeah. had just won an Academy Award a couple years before a thing we're going to mm-hmm. talk about here. So that was kind of a new thing about this. Like, you know, they're bringing A-list talent to the horror genre, right? Um, So as we said, this is not a good movie. Um, I would say my impression of it, this is before I read any reviews, is like more than anything else, it's just kind of boring. You know, like it's just, it's not an exciting movie for a thriller. It's it's, uh, slow and it doesn't really give you any true terror or thriller moments at all. Right. Um, and when I went and read people's responses to it, the main through line of the criticism was essentially it's relentlessly dull. Mm. You know, um, how did you feel about it when you watched it? I found, I mean, I can get into why, but I, I, I know felt you that will. way too. Great. I felt that I felt it was dull. Mm hmm. Now, I, uh, I don't know if now is when you want me to go. Into oh, why. I think we you should all it throughout. It. I think you should all throughout. Um, I, I think. Go ahead. Yeah, I think uh, he, the reason it's dull, I think, is that like in psychological terror, I believe that like hope is like your best weapon. Like mm-hmm. you build hope, make your character want out right. so drastically that they can't bear it, right? And then you don't just have a bunch of terrible shit happen to them. You want to make us go, you can do it, and then bash it down again. Build it up, bash it again, rise right. things to a head. And this movie doesn't do that. Um it just makes you kind of feel like shucks. It sucks to be Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> yeah, that so, is called tension. <laughs> yeah, it's what it, you hope I, versus what is, is happening. I mean, 
yeah, because it's just like this apartment is terrible. It really is. Uh, everyone is terrible to her, and it's just like yeah. you can tell that she hates it. Yep. And she wants out, so you do root for her because you are, you know, sympathetic and you're human and have a heart. But it's a different thing to like build it story wise, where you're you're like she's gonna. I see how she deals with that problem, and I bet she's going to use that kind of gumption later. We don't get any moments of that. We just Not see really. it relentlessly beat down. We kind of, yeah, we kind of want her to get to a place of like equilibrium. Really, it feels like she's yeah, in a slow freefall that sort that speeds up as the film goes along. Mm-hmm. But we never have an idea of like if only she could move to South Jersey where she'd be happy. You know, Nor like is there isn't any of that. You know. Nor is it a movie where it's like the point of the movie is she's gonna beat that ghost, <laughs> you know? Like right, it's, right, right, right. Yeah, it's totally or escape opposite. that, escape this yeah, trapped where, house. Yeah, yeah. Where what I just said is also kind of like a criterion of that kind of movie, where it's like we're gonna mm-hmm. in horror. There's usually a monster that needs to be dealt with. Correct. And this movie deals with it in a unique way. I will give it credit for that. This is very much a monster in the house type film, and I'm using the Blake Snyder term there, right? Uh, that's mm-hmm. like an archetypal story that he describes. Mm-hmm. And uh, the I think the bummer of it is the monster is very vague for most of it, and the house feels completely inescapable because they never try to. Uh, they don't. Like, try. They never try to get out of it. Yeah. So like, uh, so that's a pretty good introduction to my next point, which is, so what happened? <laughs> What happened to this film? Why? Uh, yeah. Why? So, like, is this movie like just out of his wheelhouse, or was there like a culture gap here? Uh, like, did he not? You know, I don't know. I mean, he went to school at USC, so one presumes that he had a pretty decent sense of American culture. That may not be true. Uh, the truth is, I don't know the answer to either of those questions. You know, I looked into it a little bit, and I, I couldn't get a clear answer. But what I do know is that there are some act, there are some exquisite directing moments in this film it's kind of beautifully made in a few different ways uh if you think of this as a purely fatalistic drama and get rid of the expectation of a thriller uh Mm. like if you're like i'm not gonna have any thriller moments i'm just gonna watch this sort of like sad contemplation of this woman's life it actually starts to be a pretty decent movie Mm -hmm. um not great but 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 decent and his filmmaking actually supports that um and uh, I want to get into why did that happen a little bit uh, as we go along. So cool. um, to start, Dark Water is a templated movie. It's, a, it's an experience that was, I think, packaged around uh, an expectation of these are the movies that are successful. People know exactly how they're supposed to go. Uh, it's an off-brand clone of The Ring. It's by the guy who wrote The Ring. Um, and the things that, S- that Salas did that don't, jive with or connect with those expectations are actually the things that make him a good filmmaker in my opinion mm-hmm. um the first one is and i think this really underrated he gets incredible performances in this film um really good and really deep performances right. yeah out of uh, jennifer connelly is definitely good she's so good yeah she's really the good. husband's good He's yeah, he's kind of good. Um, these performances are actually much better than we're accustomed to in the horror genre, where mm-hmm. people are typically performing the threat or the fear. That's not what's happening in this film, basically ever. Mm. Um, Jennifer Connelly's character is wounded and very grounded, like she's not um, 
there's only words that feel misogynistic to use, but she's not a person who's like, like, you know, her, she's not hysterical. She's not like losing her thread. Like that's not who she is. She's a person who has been hurt and then external forces are creating an understandable and reasonably scaled paranoia that, uh, that is growing and, and sort of coming out in very human ways uh, the whole way through the film, even at the very end with like where it really lapses into spiritualism. Mm-hmm. Um, she never does the thing you see horror protagonists do, which is like the scream. Like she never lapses into the terror or the dread in that way. She never like starts breathing hard and like worried about what's going on in the other room. Like none of that mm-hmm. stuff happens in this film, you know? Uh, even though almost every other film you can think of that's a horror movie with a female protagonist, uh, they have this, a similar background, you know, where like this is a woman who's been traumatized or has been wounded in some way or the other, right, yeah. and they don't perform the vulnerability and the groundedness. So those choices that she's making as an actor are unique, you know, like are they starkly unique? No, we've seen people do versions of it but never with the kind of depth or poignancy that Jennifer Connelly is bringing into it. And I'll give you just a couple examples. Naomi Watts doesn't really even play trauma so much in the ring, even though she has a little bit in her life. Um, she, there's very, very little of that. Um, Nev Campbell has a ton of trauma in her life and really doesn't play it in Scream, any of the Screams. Um, <clears throat> or even Bruce Willis in Sixth Sense, he is a person who died and lost, spoilers, and uh, and like lost his uh, family and his like you know sense of dignity in his work, and he feels like sort of remote and frozen in his trauma, but not grounded in it like Jennifer Connelly. Mm-hmm. How does yeah, that sit I mean, with you? That sits with me because um, it does make me realize that uh, there is a there is a clear indication of what like her want and her need is yes. from the get go, right? Which is kind of one of the parts I don't like about the film because all it really is saying is that she is this person who has been diagnosed as PTSD and she has been I think clinically she has not been clinically clinically. but a lot of people have said that she's paranoid including her uh, husband and she's clearly getting abused emotionally and and so the setup of the movie is like let's amp up the paranoia and so she has her one need is that she can raise her child alone, right? That's the whole deal. Yeah, I'm going right. to divorce you. I'm going to get my life together. I don't together. need you. Right. And all the and the whole movie, the husband is like, you, uh, it's you can't do it alone. Just admit it to yourself. Um, and that's like the crescendo of their relationship, which is a pretty shitty of, dilemma. Honestly, it's huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so she's dealing with that and. One of the reason I don't love it is because it's like the movie kind of goes for it kind of says, yeah, I mean, it's kind of true. She yeah. can't really. The abstract she has this ghost it. here. Right. And it's just like, well, OK, <laughs> if I had a ghost, I also would be that way. So it's not a good look, but they do give her a want and she and Jennifer Connelly struggles throughout the movie. I think a lot of the. um a lot of the like trauma and stuff like that happens yeah. in the movie. She's wounded That's because right. she's in an impossible situation, but it's more that things just come at her at this movie. 
uh, and it's all it's just like people don't respect her. She doesn't ask for respect. She just plays along. She's just which is trying not to, something we're used to. Yeah, she's just trying to get into harmony with her environment. Really, she's trying yeah. to make the best of this bad situation and get her feet under her, which is like a thing you can definitely root for. And I think why it's so frustrating that the movie never lets her get her feet ever. Like it feels like it right. never gets better. Um, just like a couple more words about the performance piece of this. Uh, because again, this is like a, a choice how this character gets manifested, right? If you just like mm-hmm. imagine in your mind, like all the famous horror performances, almost all of them are to some degree or another indicative. And by that, I mean, mm-hmm. they're indicating the emotion inside. They're indicating the existential dread with screaming, fear, you know, hard breathing, panting, crying, that kind of stuff, right? You don't get any of that mm-hmm. from her. Uh, all of it's being done with the eyes. And uh, it's it's very internal, and it stays internal even when the movie wants to externalize it. And that's the kind of thing you would do if you were not making a horror film, but if you were making a drama, right? Yeah, like right. horror is, in fact, the externalizing and supernaturalizing of inner trauma. I mean, that, at least that's one reading of that genre. And uh, this film sort of steadfastly refuses to make those connections. Uh, because drama is often about animating the inner life through performance. Um, and so that's right. It's like, it has two masters because horror, horror definitely has, you know, obviously it's a lot about, about it is shock value and stuff. Right. And this movie is playing to, it's like, he doesn't want the horror movie. He, you know, like the, that's right. It's like, he he doesn't want to make a horror movie. I think, I think that's actually the conclusion is that he didn't want to make a horror movie or maybe that he's wrong, the wrong guy for a horror movie, um, which is sort of where we're going. So you're, you're right on. Um, Jennifer Conley taking this part is fascinating in its own right, because she had won an Academy award and a lot of the like critical response to this film is like, why is she in this? <laughs> like a lot of people are like, she was too you good for this. To do this. Why did she do yeah. it? Uh, I don't know. I think that's interesting. Hey, Halle Berry's got to do a Gothica. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. Money, money, money. Maybe it's money. I don't know. If the, I don't know how much money this movie ha- had in its budget. I really like Jennifer Connelly. Like I just have a soft spot for her. I think she's such a great actor. And mm-hmm. uh, I that's part. That's what made me watch this. Is like I just really enjoy her work. And mm-hmm. uh, I also felt very surprised that she chose to do this movie because there's there's not a lot to it, and I I don't know if it was money or what. I'm just very surprised by it. But her acting, fantastic. Now you might be able to say, well, Adam Jennifer Connelly is a fantastic actor. That doesn't make uh, Walter Salas's work any good. Then I'd have to present you Exhibit B, which is uh, Ariel Ariel Gade, I think, or Gade. I'm not sure. Uh, who plays Cecilia, the child. Um, she's also terrific in this movie. Um, she's pretty good. She's yeah, really found, good. There's you, a, needed, you need a good, otherwise your movie's dead. This movie doesn't work um, if you don't have a great child actor. That's 100% yeah. true. And like, I think we're all forgetting that before Haley Joel Husband and Sixth Sense, great kid actors, uh, there weren't that many of them. And they were r- sort of a rare thing. Uh, like even just a charismatic kid actor was enough to create a big career. Don't sleep on Dakota Fanning. D- she's Remember after Dakota Fanning. She's she's good. Yeah, she's a good actor. Later. Like I'm thinking of like 
you know, Macaulay Culkin, right? Uh, I think of him as being a likable person and that coming through as a kid and that made him good in his roles, but not so much like a thespian, you know, like with like deep, sort of deep rooted emotions and stuff. Cause that's really hard for a kid to do quite frankly. Um, mm. And I, mean, I say that as a person who directed a lot of kids stuff at cracked somehow um, I, you just sort of find out pretty quickly that kids have a lot of limitations because they don't have the same emotional complexity and well of experience to draw on that you need as an actor. And so you can't go to a kid and sort of, you know, explain what the performance is in any way other than giving them something to imitate because they haven't had the experience a lot of times, you know, uh, that's what makes people like Ariel and, uh, or like, uh, Bobby, what's her face from the stranger things. Um, Bobby Miller, Miller Brown, something like that. Brown. Yeah. yeah. She's amazing, right? As she was a child really actor bad. and she was amazing because of the trauma she's able to access, you know? And, uh, yeah, you can always tell it's always experience, right? There's an experience component, but I think there's also a gift to being able to direct children. Um, I think there, I think there is a special talent there and, this director not only knows how to get these performances out of this kid and like he gets a lot of them and a lot of variety. He knows how to maximize those performances in the way that he shoots her. Um, so like he has a history of working with child actors. Uh, the movie central station centers around the relationship between an older woman and a child who she helps to find his father. Um, and you know, it kind of rests on the kid and so it's clear to me how he got this gig, right? Like it's really, it clearly translates from his previous experience. Why do this? Um, and you can see his talent in the fact that he can get so much and like so much out of this child, you know, um, like you get fear, you get apprehension, you get peace out of yeah. her, you get confusion, concern, you get like suspicion, you get, uh, mm-hmm. you get like fear that she covers with like being, being a good kid. You know what I mean? Like those are hard things to yeah. do. Covering your feelings as a kid—that's hard for kids to do, let alone act child actors to do. <clears throat> to yeah, just make it up. You know, um, I mean, we both directed kids. Can you imagine asking a kid to do any of the things that you saw in this film? No, I—I I mean, kids that young. I've directed kids younger than her. Yeah, um, me too. I've also directed kids older, but like when they're that young, it's mostly like, let's make a game. Yeah, right, right. You're let's you're, pretend. You're like, like uh, let's do a game where I'm gonna I'm gonna beat you at basketball, you know. Yep. And now I'm filming a scene with you playing basketball, or yeah, I need you to dig. So you, you're the king of dirt, you know. <laughs> uh, or that's what the kid said. He's like, I'm the king of dirt. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and like a lot of times you sort of have to get the best you can out of the child and sort of figure out what you're going to cut around. You know yeah, what I mean? Like that's, that, that's sort of, you, and that's the game, right? It's like, okay, what, what's the best I can do? How much do I need to see of this child? And yeah. this movie did not have that option um, at all. I would say like they, they just didn't have like this ch- kid had to be great. And she's mostly, the the movie is Connolly and her yep. and some scenes with Tim Roth, some scenes with John, you know, C. Riley. John C. Riley. It's like it's basically them too. And we don't we also often slip into her point of view. Uh so yeah, yeah. I mean I'm just sort of restating uh 
restating this point, but I'm trying to do it for emphasis so people understand it. There's good direction in this. There's good acting. Yeah, it's really good. And the drama stuff. Absolutely. So also the side characters are more complex than they have any business being. Uh, Tim Roth's character has a whole sort of a sense of his, like the weariness of his job as a lawyer who operates out of his car and a sense of like having seen it all before, but also fucking Lincoln lawyer. Yeah. It's so great. But also like getting, choosing to get invested in this case, but not too invested in it. Like it's a really, that's a very nuanced performance for a part that is really only in the movie for like 10 minutes, you know? And it's, I mean, it's Tim Roth. He's so good at the character stuff. And so is John C. Reilly. True. Uh, yeah, he's amazing in this movie as like just a subtly scuzzy dude. Like he's just a little. Subtly, he's pretty. He's, he's at like the he's betting on the ponies and not <laughs> yeah. like solving her fucking but in like, a like charming enough flood. way that you don't hold it against him. I would say, like uh, like he's willfully yeah, he's ignorant. Likeable, yeah, but he's yeah, but, but he's bad. He, it's you're meant to think he's a piece of shit. Absolutely, like he's, he's an antagonist. He's a likable piece of shit yep. because he's John C. Riley and he's really warm. And he's like, why? Well, I, I I don't know. He's just because he's a bumbling fool. But uh, he is one of the main. He's like the first one that crosses her desk in terms of like, I'm not going to respect you. Actually, I'm right. going to act I'm nice gonna trick in you. front of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, once you're once I have you as a uh, uh, tenant. I'm not going to solve any of this shit. You're going to live in this horrible apartment. And I'm going to do nothing until it's actually a threat to me. Right. He's a, he's a legit antagonist. He he really carries the tour stuff in a way that uh that keeps that movie entertaining when a, a large portion of it is just touring a bad apartment. It's like, you know, he keeps that stuff entertaining. I think yeah, all these performances are more than their horror trope compatriots would be in a different movie. You know, like, like again, think of any movie, even from the time, uh, even ones with actors you like, these characters are never as defined or as richly portrayed as they are in this movie. And also, I think it says something that he got actors of this caliber for this film. Um, like they definitely wanted to work mm-hmm. with them. Um, they're also not playing it up. They're not playing, they're not playing the, sh- the schlocky, schmaltzy spooky stuff the way that you might in a movie like even like scream you know something like that um so again all that is the work of a director who knows how to make a drama but not a thriller um Mm -hmm. the next aspect i want to talk about i think you'll find kind of fascinating is uh the blocking for camera stuff that he does so every film has and we've talked about this all the time on the podcast but every film has essentially a few visual motifs that are kind of the film's language. Like here's the aspects of film that we're going to play with in this movie that will be a language for meaning. Um, You know, let's just review some obvious examples. Wes Anderson in every movie he ever made uh, uses wide angle lenses and portrait photography and then stilted blocking for comedy effect. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Martin Scorsese, he uses constant motion, sometimes soundtrack, uh, he, he ellipses time and makes his movies feel dramatically intense with those tactics, right? Uh, yeah. It also helps him to do these long pastiche films where he's like, you know, covering 30 years of a person's life, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and we all know those movies, Goodfellas, Wolf of Wall Street, and so on. So the trouble here is that Salas is handed some really challenging constraints by the script, right? He's got, instead of going off on the road, which is what he'd like to do, 
Uh, he's got to work in a shitty, dingy apartment for most of the movie. Right. And uh, he has to shoot it so that it looks shitty and dingy. Um, and the conflict of this story comes from a leak in the ceiling, which I've had, by the way, in an apartment. And it does make you angry. <laughs> but it's not uh, the most dramatic way of indicating the supernatural underlying <laughs> problem. It's like, yeah, you know. Like you cut to, like I imagine in the screenplay, it's like cut to the leak in the ceiling. It drips. Right. It's <laughs> dark and it drippy. It's like, yeah, I've had an apartment. Uh, so, you know, it's not, a, it's not the most dynamic thing in the world, and it's kind of a stilted environment that he has to work in. Um, and then couple that with everything is constantly wet and muddy and not so much scary as gross. You know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of a That's gross right. world. It's a gross world. Um, and so these are pretty serious constraints, and he actually manages to use them to create some really interesting visual uh, language pieces. Um, and they help to underscore the power dynamics of the film. So the first one that he uses is camera height. Um, camera height mm-hmm. is the kind of thing that you never think about, but you, but it dramatically affects how you feel about a movie um, because it affects you on a lizard brain level. Um, what it does is it sort of instantly communicates if somebody is more or less powerful. And uh, what I mean by that is, is the camera over or under your eye line? Um, and if you want to think mm-hmm. about that, think about when you were a kid and you saw an adult and, or an adult was coming over to speak to you, remember how they used to tower over you, right? They used to feel like giants and you felt like, oh, they, they're invincible. They're much more powerful. Like nothing can hurt them the way you felt about their parents, right? Until you were a little older. That exactly. feeling... Is it comes back in an unconscious way when you put the camera underneath the eye line of a character, um, and then you know, mm-hmm. of course, contrast it with like the way that you now, as an adult, look down at a kid and see how sort of small and innocent their problems seem, right? How they seem cute, mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, that also is the other the 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 opposite effect of camera height, right? When you're looking over the eye line, you feel more powerful yep, than that's them. That's right. Um, so. By the way, like this this tactic, it's used everywhere. It's not just movies. In fact, video games use it all the time, right? So, like, I don't know if those of you that have played Elden Ring or have played, for instance, something like uh, Ocarina of Time, one of the things that they do to make the game seem fucking awesome is that they'll be on the eyeline of your protagonist and then introduce a boss that towers over you, which... Yeah, like Shadow of Colossus. Absolutely. Shadow of the Colossus is another one, right? That, again, is a camera height feature because they could very easily introduce the boss at its eyeline. Um, which mm-hmm. would which would dilute the effect of how much impact it's going to have on you as a character. Yeah, yeah. So it's Jennifer Connelly is a Godzilla <laughs> to her that's child. Right. That's right. So this movie sounds sound a lot more. It's awesome starting to sound now. great, isn't it? So yeah. he actually uses camera height in in a very sort of gentle, subtle way to build in feelings of powerlessness related to the ceiling leak. Because he was sort of handed mm-hmm. by the script, a ceiling link is yep. like the main indicator. That means that camera height becomes his major language piece. And he uses uh, the feeling of looking down on specifically Jennifer Connelly's character uh, all the time to indicate her helplessness, right? And this happens, by the way, immediately, mm-hmm. right? First frame of the film after her flashback, she we have an encounter with her ex-husband, 
and uh, the ex-husband comes walking in the scene, and she's sitting on a bench outside the office of the psych- the psychologist's office or whatever it is, or the mediator's mm-hmm. office, right? And uh, just simple thing, like she's sitting, he's standing. She could have easily been standing outside the office, but she's not, it's right? power. Yeah. He towers over her. She never, ever stands up to him at any point. He always looks That's up at true. him the entire movie. Um, and he's kind of tall, you know, so that like they cast a actor who's tall. That's right. He know, is so a little tall. Can... That's right. Um, yeah. So that dynamic never changes. They constantly have him standing and shouting at her and she stays seated. It's a thing that happens the whole movie. Um, uh-huh. When Dahlia and Cece see her school for the first time, they're actually walking on a street that allows them to look up at this playground. So they're, the, the school seems imposing to both of them. Even though she's an mm-hmm. adult, she still feels overpowered by the school, right? Um, the apartment mm-hmm. building, of course, you get that gigantic looking up at it thing, um, a thing that they continue to come back to even at the very end of the film. Um, the, the director is very clever with how he shoots wides in the tour scene with John C. Riley because he never lets uh, Jennifer Connelly be the tallest person in the frame. Um, he's constantly mm. putting her in the frame with John C. Riley, who's a lot taller than her. That's right. So she yeah. seems shorter than him, even though we have a child and we're observing it through a child's lens. We almost never look up at Dahlia, which is Jennifer Connelly's It's character. a great way to do powerlessness. Yes. And it's also building a system of like, not system of abuse. I mean, a lot of films have done that kind of thing. But like, if you look down on someone and then that person looks down on someone, it's like a Russian doll mm-hmm. kind of deal. Absolutely. Also, and this is the more subtle part of it, there's tons and tons of shots in this movie where she's looking out through the prison of a rainy window, a thing they do all the time, right? Which is a more obvious Uh metaphor. And those shots are almost always over her eye line. Like you're almost looking over her head at the The city. The world is, yeah, the world is looking down upon her. That's right. It gives her the sense of powerlessness. You're absolutely right. Um, and then and the leak is up. Everything's up. It's all is, built around is, the leak. That's correct. Yeah. The, the leak has sort of created an entire language. One other interesting aspect of it is because now he has a problem, right? If that's his language, he has this problem. And it is that he has a mother who's having a constant dialogue with her daughter. And the daughter will seem powerless compared to her all the time if we have a standard set of shots where we look up at the mom and down at the daughter, right? But mm-hmm. what they do is, and this is through clever blocking and angle choice, Oftentimes, they'll end up having Cece at Dahlia's mm. le- eye level through incidental things or because she comes down for the conversation, right? So, like mm-hmm. things like they'll have a chat when Cece's jumping or standing on the bed, or they'll have a chat where uh, Jennifer Connelly's sitting next to the tub and Cece's also sitting in the tub, so they're actually eye level. They kind of made them feel more like they're in it together. There's a kind of there's more of a collegial feeling between them than a strictly mother daughter feeling. Um, right. Yeah, that's true. Yes. Uh, you do get, cause it's like reading a book to her, Correct. you know, and you, you show it that they're at kind of the same eye level. That's right. And so all this sort of culminates in yeah. a specific jib shot that happens at the very end of the film. When Cece goes into the elevator after her mother has died, there's a jib shot where she looks up at the ceiling and we realize, oh, her mother is like, you know, here, Right. And there's a jib shot that indicates her mother's point of view coming down from over Cece's eyeline to look directly at her. And from that, we get that Cece is actually now at peace and that this conflict has been resolved. The danger is gone. Right? So, like, that's him literally resolving his own language with one camera shot at the end of the film. 
That's cool. Yeah, because I'm trying to think retroactively. I'm looking at all the times that we, uh, like even the shots in the tub. Yep. Because that's like the climax. Yep. Like Ceci is always, um, she's always like eye level. That's right. You know, like which is weird that, when you think about it. Which is yeah. weird because when it cuts, you know, Jen, you would expect therefore Jennifer Connelly would be looking up at her. But we're still kind of always doing this top-down thing. But it doesn't feel like it's a surveillance film. Never. There are there shots are surveillance of shots. the yes. There's surveillance shots in the elevator, right? Mostly. There's two. There's two big ones. But um, yeah, it's like it doesn't feel like it's high, wide, and dumb. You know, camera angle wise. Right. So it's it's definitely um, he pulls that thread really well. Now the director. One thing. So again, this is the kind of thing that if you are Wes Anderson, this would be a loud choice, right? And the audience would become would feel it and be aware of it. But Salas, again, mm-hmm. he's a dramatic director. And so he actually kind of softens the effect of this choice by constantly working in mid-range or longer lenses to sort That's, of yeah, undersell the impact of it so you don't realize he's doing it. Again, not the way a horror film gets directed. It's the way a drama gets directed. Uh, yeah. So, you know... Uh, it makes these decisions feel more like their background and, yeah. you know, undercuts the tension that he's trying to create visually. So it's the wrong choice for this film, but it's a choice that's really right. cool. You know, it's very cool. Yeah. But it, and it also has the added effect of being the being the hypothetical wrong choice, but also having the benefit that in the system it works. And now you're using a 50 for everything, which is like. For people who don't know, lenses 50 is almost always uh, recognized as the one that matches actual eyesight the best. Like, our, when, when I mean that, like, eyesight in terms of, like, we have huge lenses and we ha- also our brain puts in our periphery. We build, like, th- things. But when you, like, focus on something at a middle distance and, like, look at that thing, what you would say is within your view, I'm talking about what's in your focus, that's, like, drawing a canvas on a film right. like on exactly. a film sensor you know or a video sensor so it'd be like it's about coverage of the usual input focus of humanity you know it also has the additional benefit of kind of having not too much depth of field but not too little um it's kind of mid-range yeah and uh again it's uh, there's part of me that really appreciates the subtlety of it. And maybe that's just sort of the language he feels comfortable filming in. I don't know. I don't remember his other films well enough mm-hmm. to be like, oh, yeah, that's just his deal mm-hmm. is that he works in this sort of, you know, this range. But uh, I, you can see that it clearly doesn't fit the genre. Uh, and that's what's so interesting about it. Um, so another aspect of his film work, like his cinematography, that's really interesting is that he's constantly giving us really meaningful frames that are they happen organically so they never feel placed um and therefore you don't realize you're actually being set up for the end of the film mm. um for instance the we i don't know how many times i'm going to say 10,000 i don't know a <laughs> lot of times uh he gives us glass walls in this film right? right and glass walls are a fairly obvious metaphor but they fit this movie because of the rain and uh because of the sort of performance that's being given. So they start to become this invisible barrier that we feel more than think about. Yeah. And again, because of the rain, uh, we get this sense that uh, this woman is drowning metaphorically, but she's also going to drown literally at the end of the film. Um, mm-hmm. So that becomes a really 
important uh, foreshadowing component. Also, there's little things like when she meets Veek, who's the uh, <laughs> the guy that's being played by Kobayashi from Usual Suspects, yep. uh, who's the only guy that's actually in a horror film in this movie, by the way. Uh, when she meets him, the glass <laughs> between them has a crack in it, uh, and that crack in it sort of... Sp- fractures their ability to see each other clearly and gives us a clear indicator of who he is, which mm-hmm. is somebody who's, you know, you can't totally trust what he's telling you. Yep. Um, and uh, there's also just sort of effortless switches between points of view in this movie, which is a thing you never see in in like uh, in a horror film in the same way. You don't see like, like, oh yeah, we kind of switch and hand off point of view in a scene. Usually like a scene, if we're switching point of view, it's because a big murder is going to happen or something. Otherwise, we're kind of with the main character. But in this mm-hmm. movie, we're sort of effortlessly handing off the point of view between Cece and Dahlia, uh, which kind of, again, internally links them together. Like they're sort of having almost the same point of view. Um, yeah, I think... Ag- I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I didn't notice that at first, but now that I'm thinking about the shots, like playing the movie in my head, like, um, yeah, it's, it's also, I think the, because his system is a tall system, it's the, the height of the camera kind of deals with right. the intention. It, it makes you really, you are not necessarily at odd angles, but you're slightly, you're not like at eye level or two inches above eye level, which is how we shoot most dramas, you know, like. Uh, or scenes in general, uh, you know, where it's like, it's not comfortable. And so it kind of forces your brain to think about whose POV might this be because it's at an odd place. It could be anyone's and that it kind of forces you to think about those, like the point of view switches feel naturalistic therefore in that system. I like that. Uh, Yeah. Again, not a thing you see very often in horror films, um, so another subtle motif that I thought was interesting, this one kind of falls into what we might call the wedding singer category, mm-hmm. um, is that he's using color in a way that's not totally clear, but clearly intentional. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a thing after nine 11 to make I movies knew you were gonna bring up nine 11. Well, I mean, it's 2004, bro. I, yeah, <laughs> but it was, it was a thing to make movies feel like they're all one color. That was like basically 10 years of cinema. It's like, Everything was one color, and that color was desaturated. You know what it was I mean? Desaturated. It was blue. Yeah. Let's just call it what it was. It's blue, blue or it's like green it's and brown. Yeah. It, right. It, yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm. And uh, in horror movies, in particular, we got obsessed with what you might call this like muddy earth tone green hue thing. That's like sort of like yeah. a joyless matrix. Yeah. Uh, that was just the way horror movies looked. So what's interesting is that Salas makes this uh, specific choice to put i think eye-catching splashes of like saturated blue like really Mm. saturated electric blue um and it happens throughout the film um so like some examples yeah yeah so some examples veek has a bright blue cap on his water tank when we first meet him um also he's got a bright blue map behind him um the hello kitty backpack which ends up being sort of a plot point and i don't know why it had to be hello kitty but we'll go with that uh, it has bright blue patches on it. Um, there's a Raggedy Ann doll in Cece's room that has bright blue pants on it. Um, there's like a blue light that's coming from like this one area of the laundry room when Jennifer uh, Connolly is like, you know, 
almost threatened by that one weird guy in the laundry room who never shows up again. Yeah, uh, just it feels like it's just to ramp up the feeling. Yeah, it's like is he gonna assault her? No, yeah. he's just a weird guy. No, uh, but there's like this weird blue light. She goes toward it. What's in the blue light? The backpack. Um, so when CC freaks out and goes to class, and then she like freaks out and like you know draws that crazy thing that she can't control. Then she's told, okay, get yourself cleaned up. She goes in the bathroom. The soap dispensers have this bright blue soap in it. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's like, it goes on and on. When Dahlia starts having her breakdown, she has a bright blue pillow. Um, When Natasha actually does appear and ask Dahlia to read her a story, she's in the blue bathrobe. Mm -hmm. It's like the first time the spirit actually manifests. And then finally, when we're actually watching Cece and her dad move into this new place and they're walking away, he's got a bright blue Tupperware container at the very top, which sort of implies they're taking Dahlia with them. They're all kind of similar blues, too. They're almost, yeah, they're either a saturated or or like a really desaturated version of the same hue of blue, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so like... There's also pops that are just there to like break up the monotony, right? Like, you know, I think he did, I think he was resistant to the idea of like, let's do a post 9 11 film, you know? Uh, but I mm-hmm. like my read of it is essentially that it's his way of indicating what is the emotionally important through line going on in the film. Like, this is sort of tracing the undercurrent, like, supernatural impact to some degree. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he, manages to dial up saturation and down saturation to some degree in key moments of tension, which is a thing that, by the way, a lot of films do and you barely think about it. Like when there's moments of tension, a lot of times in movies, suddenly the colors get really saturated. Like you're looking at an alarm, like a, like an actual alarm siren or something. Or they just Um, contrast with whatever the thing is. Correct. And in this case, it's saturation because they desaturate the fuck out of everything else. That's correct. So, like, what is he explicitly saying? I'm not sure if you can say it's one-to-one, kind of like what was Adam Sandler's deal in The wet, in the Wedding Singer. I mm-hmm. think it's more that we're creating a kind of subjectivity that maps along the lines of the main story, like the undercurrent mm-hmm. story. Like, Veek's a liar, and he's covering up for Natasha, and Natasha's seeking out Jennifer Connelly because she wants a replacement mother. Like, all mm-hmm. that stuff is connected by this blue splash. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's subtle enough that it's like... Again, it's more of a thing that's happening in the background of your brain than it is uh, a thing that's like clearly a meaningful, you know, indicator. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, I don't. I again, like, it's not done enough for it to create tension, uh, or for it to be a clear indicator. Meaning, like, it would be in a horror film for the most part, but it's enough that it's the way a drama director might do it. You know. That yeah. That's you make a really good argument that there's really good craft in this movie, even though it's boring as fuck. It really is. Uh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean maybe this... not to some people who are like, I've seen, I'm sure our films are boring as fuck. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, you know, you can, that's fine. But uh, this is one of these cases where it's like, Oh, it's almost like it doesn't want to live in its own system. And it makes an appeal to the drama, like it makes an appeal and all the emphasis and all the work goes into this one aspect of it. And it's not movie wide or movie tight, you know, it's not holistic in the way that it's all cadent and perfectly drawn up together. So no, that's another fit. So right, that's why we go like, this is a forgettable movie right. because even though the artistry is there, 
the director didn't do it all the way through. And I think that that's probably not necessarily his fault. I mean, he should make it his fault. Like that's the thing with the director is it's your job to make the best movie. But so he should have like, he should have made the whole team play instead of just relying on his star, you know, like his star basketball player or whatever, which in this metaphor is, you know, how he approaches the drama. It's real. That's really a, that's interesting. I hadn't, I, I don't think I've usually when I see a boring movie, I'm just like, there's nothing here. You know, all of this is to lead to what I think is a fair question. And that question is, so why doesn't it work? You know what I mean? If this guy uh, clearly has a lot of talent, why isn't it good? Uh, You know, why did we miss the movie part of the movie? Uh, So, like, I I have some theories. One of them is that uh, I think on a script level, it's not very good. Um, Like, on a story level, not even a script level, I think on a story level, it's not the best. Because most of the gritty supernatural stuff happens off screen in it. (laughs) Um, you know what I mean? Like, that's just not good. And I would say like a building leak in general is not a scary enough, like monster to be encountering. Like it's no Babadook, you know, uh, it's not innocuous. It's, it's not innocuous enough to be mundane, but it's not interesting enough to be tense. Uh, it's more of like a, it's, it's like annoying (laughs) more than it is scary. Right. There's this one moment where I don't know how they did it, if they did it practically or there's some, you know, digital fudgery going on. But the one truly like haunting image to me in the movie actually is in the school. Which um, one? Like uh, it's when Ceci is drawing and then she's not in control of her hand any longer. And she oh, starts, yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she freaks out. And right, it right, right. really looks like she does not control her. It's hand. incredible acting. I it's wonder really if it's impressive. like they, they took like someone and like moved her hand because it really like she's fighting against it. And it's like it's just very well done. And yeah. if the the actor if she did it, fucking hell. Um, and up to that point, though, and that's like an hour and 15 minutes. It's into the pretty film. late in the film. Yeah. Yeah. Other than switching actors for some jump scares where it's like, this is my little girl. Oh, no, it's the dead girl. It's the first like supernatural thing in the movie. The rest of the movie scares other than that are like, the water is dark. Right, right. It's spilling out of the it's, thing. It's know? the only supernatural thing. Like that you never. Yeah. Even when the actual, you know, dead child shows up at the end of the film, she doesn't look like a dead child. She no. just looks like a kid. She just and wants then a mom. Yeah. yeah, and then then and then she like you know does this drowning the child thing, which you know it's there's mild tension there. Like I don't want to belittle that, but it's not. Yeah, it's just not a. It's not a well crafted film on the level of like manifesting inner trauma. It's not it doing seems that. Externalizing uninterested it. in the jump yeah. scares. But oh, it's there's like, no jump scares at all. I'm, well, there are, but they're like they're totally phoned in. They super don't work. They, yeah, and and it's I think it's because it's like he didn't care, and he doesn't want to revolutionize jump scares, you know. So and the I, studio was like, you 
gotta have like the the horror music sting that happens. I and guess goes, oh, he it's seems gotta like be something like that, right? I, I mean, to me, I'm looking at what he's really good at and the stuff they think is really good about this film, and I think it's actually antithetical to what would make a thriller work. Like, yeah. I think this is one of it's those yeah. really clear examples of this is the wrong guy should not have hired this guy for this film, because like the film is too grounded. That's another thing is like yeah, horror films are not grounded. grounded like this. You know, could they be? I guess. But then I want something like Exorcist. You know what I mean? Like Exorcist is a fairly grounded film. And what makes it work is that like when we get into the, you know, supernatural stuff, it goes really crazy with like fairly realistic people. And you're like, whoa, the contrast, right? And that doesn't and really think, happen here. Yeah, I think that the, what they're doing is they're like, they got this writer. He did like The Ring. Right. Let's get all of his stuff, you know. Let's buy right, all let's of his stuff. Let's acquire it all. That's right. And the guy was like, "Well, this short story wasn't necessarily made designed to be made into a movie, but you have the rights to it, so go ahead." <laughs> you know, like that, like because the writing isn't bad as much as like it makes choices that are like not not conducive to the genre. It feels like it's in. Yeah, it's it's uh, right. It, it, <laughs> it's. It's like, yeah, I just don't think this should have been adapted at all, honestly. I just think, like, all the math and it makes sense, like, in hindsight for a studio executive, right? It's like, every, like this guy's works are, like, leaping off the screen right now. Mm-hmm. They're making a lot of money. We'll throw a little money at talent and get somebody really good in it. And we got mm-hmm. this new director who can work with kids. And, you know, he's, he's you know, right? Like, it, it all yeah. it all adds up except for the director doesn't make these movies. Uh, and again, like, I feel like both sympathetic to him and also, uh, sort of not sympathetic because it's like, I get, he probably didn't want to be boxed in. There's probably a part of him that's like, I could make a horror film. Why couldn't I, you know? Uh-huh. And yet there's a part of me that knows, well, I've tried dramas a bunch of times and, uh, they're hit and miss. <laughs> right. Right. And th- th- there's other stuff in this movie that feel lazy. Like, as much as there is good drama in this and the basic setup about like Jennifer Connelly trying to, you know, um, find balance in her life. Uh, yep. I did mention, I have a problem with that. She never tries to take control. I understand that that's not what this movie is. She never can get her head above water. Never, you know, like that as a metaphor here. Right. I just, I mean, I'll just, I'll just say that if you watch this movie, all the things in the movie you're meant to think, are gaslighting her character that she's paranoid (laughs) PTSD incapable of ruining her life turn out to be true and that's kind of a fucked up message about victims Tim Roth comes in and cleans up basically everything because he's assertive and a man and that's like it's not a good look but I understand that it's it's trying to occupy other things I've had this conversation about the new movie Blonde have you seen Blonde didn't watch it is that uh, the Marilyn Monroe movie going to town on it right now currently as we record this episode okay very uh, similar kind of situation. And I, I won't talk about it. I just think it's a constant issue. Um, but it's like, there's also weird choices that this movie makes that I laughed at and I called out. Because he's like, the idea that John C. Riley, when she calls, when Jennifer Connelly calls and says there's a leak and it's really bad in my apartment and John C. Riley is a landlord, not calling a super or a plumber, like that's just straight up illegal you know action can be taken again she doesn't well is it say I mean, like you're right that it's yeah. illegal but does that mean for sure that she would do that 
Oh, you know that, what I mean? You're right. That's what I'm saying is like, it seems like basic stuff. Like right. no action is taken on the kids who stole a key to an apartment. They just say, right, uh, right. that just keeps going. You know, that's yeah. just a thing that we can't do anything about. It's like, no, you can. You said, you know, who did it. <laughs> you know, it's this idea that all, all these things are powerless, but they almost like fudge reality. Like, they do nothing literally when they see they hear the kids upstairs. They're like, if we just went up there right now, we could get the key back, you know? But no one does shit. Uh, it, it's I, a very I, inactive film. I totally agree. It's very yeah. inactive. And when it does start to resolve those things, it does it in a way that makes her still feel inactive. Like she hires yeah. an attorney, one she didn't pick, by the way. And then like he mm-hmm. does most of the stuff and she kind of withers under and the stress of it a thing that happens in life it happens in that's life that's true but that doesn't make it good for a movie that's very yeah i agree with everything you just said it's crazy though this movie jennifer Connolly dies and becomes ghost mom to this ghost girl right that's right little ghost girl for all eternity so that's a this is an insane movie like jennifer Connolly's just put through the ringer and she just accepts it like that's what it feels like to from the save outside. her child in theory, but I think that in- was actually really muddy. Like pun mm-hmm. intended, uh, <laughs> it it was it was really unclearly like the handoff there was very like so she's doing this to save her daughter's life and like there's no version where like just come and live with us, ghost. You know what I mean? Like no, yeah. like why not negotiate this if the ghost is an intelligence? I don't. I, I know that sounds dumb, but why? You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I care, I guess, but I'm just like not, not feeling like she cares. That's which I understand that is like blaming her for the totally like blaming the character for the problems that like she's not that the writer being a for protagonist nor, like we right. expect where she's active and takes control of her destiny. It's a uh, it's a bad it's not that. script. I mean, it is. It's not a good script, but it's hard I, to watch in that regard. I agree, and I would argue. Salas kind of failed to sensationalize the things that the elements that were given that were sensational and every, even everything about his aesthetic underplays the sensationalizing. Like he's actually doing the going the exact wrong direction. Uh, you know? Yeah. I mean like, and again, I'm sorry, man, I, you've made some good films and I'm not here to judge you. I just, mm-hmm. you know, like it's clear to me that this, that something in you was fighting making this movie. Fighting making a complete movie. And maybe the writing yeah. was uh, taking you down, a, taking itself down a path that you just didn't want to go to. Uh, and you were signed on the movie anyway. Um, who knows? So yeah, be, who knows? Maybe who it's for money. I mean, but I really do yeah. believe that you, even if you don't want to make that, like, if, you, if you're going to get paid to make that movie, you make the movie good. You don't do your other thing. You know, you move. Right, do right. You don't fight asking. the movie. Uh, no, I wouldn't make, I wouldn't want to direct this, but I would to get work, you know? So maybe it was that kind of situation. Well, you, I mean, we, you and I have been in situations where we made things that we disagreed with and mm. to varying degrees of success. I don't remember you or I ever saying, I'm going to make a different movie than this is. No, you just don't, it's not done. And I'm not saying that you know, he did it this way, but he right. stuck to his guns because I think it was like the comfort factor. Uh, and yeah. the horror stuff, which was there, and kind of the reason that you're expecting the movie to be a certain way, is non-existent, and so therefore feels boring. 
but there is good craft in it and he's a good director i think uh he just failed at this simple assignment to me maybe it's not so simple maybe i'm making that you know i don't know how i i mean like again here we are from the vantage of you know basically 20 years later uh i don't know i don't have an immediate solution to how to make this good like I, I, I was no. thinking about it while I was like watching it because you know, which is every time we do a director piece theater, it's the result of a a, a hunt for a movie that kind of ca- an aspect of a movie that captures your mind. And mm-hmm. I started to know that I was going to do this one when I kept being like, why, th- why are we doing What's this going on here? movie yeah. this way? And then like realizing I don't have a solution for him either. Uh, right. like I don't, I don't see the obvious thing because when I see the obvious thing, I think you're not the best director. You like you know, uh, or like I don't know. That's like you just where your brain goes, job. right? Yeah, other people have directed movies, right? And they figured and it out. Done been fine. They figured it out. Yeah, but this no, one, I think, I couldn't figure. Task. Yeah, it feels like that to me. I might be wrong. Uh, I could, I didn't get enough. I didn't get any juicy information on the making of the film that that changed how I viewed about it. Like he was taken over it. by the studio to force to do stuff. No, yeah, that's always. There's always that case. I think. I think that's probably the big takeaway. This movie should not have been made. Um, well, it really undercut his career too. Like he he a, yeah. he made docs and stuff after this, but he really never got back to making a Hollywood feature. He had a shot to do Hollywood for a bit, and it just made it him seem like he's not right for Hollywood, which is not yeah. necessarily true. If you, I don't know, give him a movie like What Lies Beneath or something, you know. Yeah, maybe that was the thinking actually, because that's a movie that, that's a horror movie that is a pretty grounded drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's not clear to me. But when I was looking through his uh, subsequent career, he basically stopped making Hollywood dramas, uh, well, Hollywood films at all after this. And he made some like he like did segments of larger productions, and then he did some some like. Uh, documentaries and he did i think he did a couple other uh brazilian films he did the film on the road but i don't think on the road was uh oh yeah i think on the road was like a like a beat writer thing like it's based on yeah it's based on jack kerouac's novel oh so like oh yeah it's the one with kristen stewart remember that kristen kristen stewart was in that beatnik movie she did he did that one which is (laughs) a road movie that Uh, sounds so he's done some stuff but terribly fine yeah, yeah, yeah. He did some stuff. It's just, you know, this was not his uh not his greatest moment. Uh by the way, Dark yeah. Waters 2005. 2005. Yeah. Yeah, that's um damn. Yeah, that's tough. That's tough. Yeah. You got to do something though. You got to figure it out. Otherwise, you got to find a way to write around it. I don't know what Otherwise, I would what do. the fuck are we doing? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't But it's like imagine if they like got you to do like, a, a no. period piece drama, Abe. You know what I mean? Like they're like, okay, you're gonna go back and do like a like a fucking Thomas Hardy novel. Like we're gonna remake uh-huh. Portrait of a Woman, and Abe's gonna direct it. You oh, know boy. what I mean? And like that, it's either that or you don't direct something, right? Which is, I mean, on some level, probably where he was. Like, yeah. what do you fucking do with that? You know? I'll take the job. I don't I mean, know exactly. The job, you take the job and you roll the dice about that. I'm gonna I'm gonna right. be like. Don't say that, even right. though everyone should say that. Right. It's the right thing to say. I shouldn't direct that. But, but you'll I mean, still like, do it. I need to pay rent. <laughs> therein lies the it's, therein it's, lies the, the problem, right? It's such a conundrum. Uh, 
Yeah. One of my favorite moments in this movie is that as he's casually, John C. Riley casually goes through, tours the apartment when she, before she, uh, they become tenants and, uh, he's everything. He's just trying to make it seem like it's much better than it is. He's like, look at this million dollar view. And it's like shitty. It's like, uh, look at this table. There's a kitchen table that just disappears. It doesn't like lay flat. Everything is fucking broken. Um, and one of the ones that he says is he, he goes to, and it becomes a plot point later. He goes in the bathroom and he knocks on the safety glass and he says, unbreakable shower door. Yeah. <laughs> and so you think it's set up. Oh, so that's bullshit too. Right, right, right. He does you know? say that. Like, I remember you that. You halfway expect yeah, 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 him yeah, yeah. to hit it and it to break like some like fucking Elon Musk shit. I remembered him but saying that because it was so weird. It was such a weird back. thing to say. It comes back. It's a necessary plot point for yeah. like she can't get to her child who's yeah. being drowned by the ghost because yeah. it's unbreakable, unbreakable. shower like door, bulletproof shower door. Also, that doesn't exist. I'm sorry. Right? You what is this horse shit? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. The smallest amount, the tiniest person could rip that that door off its hinges <laughs> because it's it's like a piece of aluminum. It's on rollers. Shower it's doors rollers. are on rollers. What are you, you talking about? You just shake about? it. Just shake it a few right. times. It's not it a medieval off. gate, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't need a fucking winch to lower it and raise it. Yeah, exactly. I'm outside of a glass case of emotion. It, it was very. <laughs> that line very, was. I laughed at that. Really stupid. I remember hearing it and being like, that's dumb. <laughs> like, but it comes back. It's the one well, thing that's we're why supposed it's to dumb. Because that's it why. shouldn't be a thing that comes back. It's Yeah, anyway. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. No proof was offered either. It's just a statement. No proof. And then it's a fact yeah. later. Oh, my God. I yeah. love it. It's well, so, I. I, I hope you I hope you were okay, sir, when I made you swim through the dark water here. Oh, I'm more than fine. I've seen my share of movies. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, movies. We should come. I just uh, yeah, I want to have sympathy for directors who uh, it's like, man, I do too. I love you, man. Uh, I can see you're good at your job. Uh, this just didn't happen for you, you know. Uh, yeah, it's a hard job. It's it's, the, it's hard. if it was easy, they wouldn't pay so much. You know, that's right. Uh, I got a question for you. I'm so ready for whatever this is going to be. I'm Do so ready. Do you think that 9-11 caused blue tinted movies? Because <laughs> he said it a few times. You're like, it's 9-11, post 9-11 movie. So it's blue tinted. Or like, <laughs> I just want to, you know, I that, think, that uh, feels- thank you for asking. Uh, definitely. Yes. <laughs> Uh, no, no. I think it, the the trend started before that, right? Time. Well, no, I don't it started know. With, it started with Saving Private Ryan and The Matrix and a few other movies that were super monochromatic. Well, uh, yeah, I would argue it started with the digital intermediate. Yes. Which was, oh, brother, where? Oh, brother, where art thou? Exactly. And then people were like, let's just put Photoshop Let's filters go all on the this. way. Instagram. Wham, yeah. wham, wham, wham. I remember so they, Saving they Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan felt like a leap forward in film because it was the bleach bypass. Process. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It really, it just dramatically changed the way that you felt about it, the image as a whole. Uh, like it felt like right, we really got into big. a new era. Yeah. And then like, and Spielberg kept doing it. Like minority report had like sort of a, a washed it's out a aesthetic cool, like that. 
it's a cool aesthetic. Yeah, uh, it also works with um, Spielberg because he puts big lights in front in behind right. actors to get this plumage of glow. So and it and it and exaggerates the glow because literally the silver nitrate is being ripped out of the the emulsion. But um, the bleach bypass look had been done since movies in the sixties. Man, they, 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 they was all over the well, place of course. and then went away. He didn't, invent and then Spielberg it. repurposes right. this thing and just causes it to be like, ah, oh, yes, film should have like a look and then we got stuff like traffic and traffic um, is so good and we got matrix even to matrix. some extent yep. uh although that's not that desaturated of film it's just very controlled and black and white and green traffic went um, so far too with like the processing techniques to get its look mm-hmm. uh that i feel like it just sort of opened the eyes of like, oh, and people like this? Oh, we can go way further. But I do think that, this sounds very dumb and I can't prove it. Uh, I do think that a lot of the moodiness that was put into films subsequent to 9-11 that was expressed through color Mm -hmm. uh, is emerging of that trend and the historical events. Because you think about movies from other countries from the time and they don't, they're so you not do as... you think 9-11 caused Bloomington? Yes. Movies? Yes, is the answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although, again, yeah. I, have to cite, I have to cite Enemy of the State, a movie that came uh, out before. Well, uh, I'll also mention the Harry Potters. They're the biggest defenders, right? But they, after, those like, are the after 9-11. Movie? After 9-11. Yeah, but they're not American. I don't know, man. They're, they're, it's they're, a British. They're big, they're big budget studio pictures. Right, right? in the comments... What did, did what did 9/11 make blue do? Yeah. <laughs> what what blue was 9/11 all about? <laughs> Summarize 9/11 in the comments. That's what I Abe wants you to do. Yes, that'll be our Chipotle question of the week. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Still waiting for that money, Chipotle. Chipotle, we got a segment just for you, so bring it in. We uh, we're waiting for that 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 check. You know, we've been doing this for a while now. <laughs> that burrito shaped check. But we'll just keep calling you at Chipotle. At Chipotle at Chipotle.com. Family restaurant, Chipotle. And while you're at it, you know, it would be really cool, speaking of money. um, (laughs) Which we always are. I'm always about the money. Yep. Uh, He is. And so here's what I want to say. Patreon.com slash small beans. You're probably on it right now. If you are not, hey, throw us a few dollars. We like to talk about films. We like to talk about video games. We're just a bunch of casual people. Enjoy your parasocial relationship with us. That's what we want. We want to be your friend from afar. <laughs> but yeah, uh, if you like uh, the cut of our jib and like our conversations and topics, go on over there. Throw us a few dollars. We got a lot of shows. We'd sure a lot appreciate of things to like. So you take your pick. Uh, small beans for life, yo. That's right. We're gonna keep doing it till the sun until, explodes, or mm-hmm. you know, till uh, I bring up dark water again, and Abe's like, I quit podcasts. I One quit, of those two I, things. Retiring. Damn, has anyone ever retired from podcasting? That I, would think be Rush, I think Rush. I think Rush Limbaugh did. Damn it! But that doesn't count because he's like, he has a show. It's not like I guess it is a podcast. That's all he and has. He also yeah. died. Was, I just think it would be such a cool move to just one day announce. I'm never doing another podcast. I'm retiring. I feel like Joe Rogan's going to pull that off in our lifetime, right? Jesus Christ. I feel like he's going to. Yeah. Yeah, he is. And he's going to be like, and then he's going to have, he's going to guest on some podcasts. But he's not going to do his own podcast. That's right. Well, yeah. But I mean, I just think it's, look. Yeah. This, uh, this is actually a segment of our upcoming project, Roganomics. 
uh, where we just talk about all all things Joe. All <laughs> just catching up Joe. on the Joes. Yep. Yeah. So I don't know. We can Get leave now, right? Joe Rogo to go. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Please stop recording. I'm drowning Please now. Leave. I'm drowning it. Yep. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monsters. Beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!